I'm Mark Hennick. This is So-Called Normal. Hey folks, welcome to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Today on the show, we've got health columnist for the Globe and Mail, my friend Andre Picard. Andre is a, a Twitter superstar. I've been following him for years. We've been talking off and on. Uh, he's done some some incredible reporting on mental health in particular, but uh, has been a health reporter there talking about these kinds of issues for 30, 40 years, I think he, he, he says in, in our conversation. So I, I love chatting with him. Uh, we, we go into a lot. We talk about the, uh, his early days covering the AIDS crisis and the stigma uh, about that kind of issue, uh, about tainted blood, about getting into mental health journalism uh, and how that both impacts uh, journalists, but the people who are reading his stories too, and, and the importance of uh, the individual story in, in sharing this, which is something that I talk about all the time. So I, I know that you're going to really enjoy uh, my conversation with him. I know I sure did. Uh, without further ado, here's my conversation with Andre Picard on So-Called Normal. Well, I am the health columnist at the Globe and Mail, and I've been there forever. So 32 years 32. and counting. Wow. Yeah. Always in health or on different beats? Well, like every new person, I started on general assignment. So I did a little bit of everything, but kind of by accident got into healthcare really early on because it was the era of AIDS. So AIDS is kind of the arc of my whole career. Uh, I started in student newspapers right at the time where AIDS was starting and we wrote a lot about it. Then I went to the Globe and it turned out that, you know, the old timer medical reporter was not interested in AIDS. So I kind of, Mm. it was not a good story to write. So it got dumped on the new person, on the student. So I started doing that and I kind of stayed with it all these years with a few little detours here and there. So this would have been right at the very beginning of the AIDS crisis? or Yeah, so this is 1986. So right. that's oh, yeah. when it really entered the mainstream. You know, in student newspapers in the early 80s, we wrote about AIDS, but it was more a political issue. It wasn't a health issue. It was sure. the persecution of gay men, the raiding of bathhouses, things like that. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, what shaped my approach to this day is I, I think of health as a political issue, mm-hmm. a social issue more than a medical one. So. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How did how were the politics of the AIDS crisis at the time? Whether it's on on campus or writing eventually for a major, the major national newspaper uh, about that kind of thing. What what was your audience response to to those kinds of pieces? Well, it was a new and a frightening thing, right? Mm-hmm. And the the response was the way it often is to new things. If uh, crack down, let's persecute the people who are right. infected. You know the way any outbreak happens. So there's yeah. a lot of uh, gross mistreatment, human rights mistreatment of gay men. There's a lot of blaming of people of different communities. Uh, We used to call them, it's not politically correct, but uh, to remember who was at risk, the 4-H club. Mm. So Haitians and hemophiliacs and uh, homosexuals was the word we used at the time, and then uh, heroin users. Mm. So all those communities were really singled out. They were persecuted. They were stigmatized. Uh, The coverage was pretty awful, to be honest. And when the the mainstream media got into it and started covering it more as a medical and an economic issue. The, the, the change, things changed for the better, actually. Yeah. Uh, so you're still, uh, you said, writing about that issue in particular, the one that you started out with. How's that evolved over the last 35 years? Well, it's almost 40 years, and 40 it's, years, it's yeah. uh, you know, we live in a world now where people where AIDS is now a chronic condition. 
Uh, I know people who've been living with AIDS since 1981 and they're in good health. They travel around the world with their grandchildren. Mm -hmm. You know, it's quite amazing. to th That was unthinkable. Mm -hmm. uh, in the early days of the AIDS crisis, it was all about protests because people got infected and they died quickly. Mm -hmm. There were no treatments for many years. So I, I just Yeah, I just recently actually was um, talking to a friend who gave me an insight that I had never had before that young gay men today um, have have mentors in older gay men that older gay men when they were young didn't have because so many of them had died by AIDS. And I had never really thought of that before, that of course it, it ravaged the gay community in particular. Yeah, it was, it's unbelievable. And, and the hemophilia community even more. Mm -hmm. When you think that 50% of all hemophiliacs died mm -hmm. uh, because of tainted blood, it was really quite dramatic uh, what happened. Mm -hmm. Now you've covered a couple of tainted blood uh, scandals and stories over the years too, right? Yeah, so the tainted blood story is probably the big story of my career. Mm -hmm. So I, because of AIDS, I started covering the different communities. And uh, once I started covering the hemophilia community and realized just how the depth of that uh, infection, then that became a whole other issue at the paper. And, and I literally covered that for years on end, right. uh, leading up to the, a lot of our coverage, uh, got a lot of attention. It led to a public inquiry, to the Creever inquiry, which right. led to more than $5 billion in compensation. So it's, a, wow. it's the biggest public health disaster in Canadian history. And, you know, I've, I've followed it for many years. And then recently there's been a, a TV series called mm -hmm. Unspeakable mm -hmm. uh, that's been on the air, which was based on a, a book I wrote on that many, 20 years ago. Yeah. So it was nice to see that a new generation learn about that who had no idea. Yeah. So you know a lot about blood then, it seems I like. know a <laughs> tremendous amount of blood, about blood and AIDS and all yeah. kinds of icky stuff. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so actually, yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder this often of healthcare providers too, especially, um, you know, surgeons, physicians, or, or even uh, nurses, LPNs, people who do the real messy work. What draws you to that? Why do you, why do you focus on that kind of material? You could focus on anything, especially at this point in your career. Well, I think it's uh, the people draw you to it. The the, the fluids are, are irrelevant in the, in the grander scheme of things, right? right? It's about whether you're writing about mental health or AIDS or Ebola. Right. Uh, it's it's about the people and the ability to make a difference and to inform people. You know, I don't do hands-on care. I have a lot of respect for the nurses and doctors sure. and others who do that. I don't do it, but I'm a privileged witness to what they do, and I, right. I appreciate that. Well, and in many ways, I think, you know, if, if you're doing it, especially as a physician, you're trained to lose some of the, the connection with the person, I think, you know, to, to have something of a, a professional distance. Uh, but you as the watcher, you must have, must have met so many people with such uh, both troubling and inspiring stories over the years, you know, talking to people who have dealt with all of these illnesses. Yeah, and you have to remember it is to, a privilege to talk to people, and it's uh, it's not easy for people to share their stories. You know that uh, it's harder for some people than others, and you have to really be uh, willing to listen. And I think that's the the key part of being a good journalist is being able mm -hmm. to listen and to respect people's stories. Uh, I think the most important thing I've learned being a healthcare journalist is never to judge people. Right. There's so many different kinds of people with different challenges, and they, you know, all. We're all fundamentally the same when you get down to it. So I think you lose, or you should, if you're a good journalist, lose your prejudices pretty quickly and just say, listen, what, what's your story and right. what's the public policy aspect to this and, and you know, what should yeah. we focus on? When I think of um, controversial um, 
public media personalities or journalists. Uh, Andre Picard is not one of the <laughs> names that comes to mind. However, <laughs> you very uh, pointedly and directly uh, uh, often, I notice, counter critics as well. People who, uh, uh, on Twitter especially, which is a... <laughs> Not not always the most conducive place, the most conducive to civilized discussion. Uh, but you'll counter people. You tell people that you share articles, for example, that you don't necessarily agree with, uh, that that's part of being a journalist. Uh, or just the other day, I noticed uh, that you had tweeted about your experience, I think you said, with with measles as a as a young child. Yeah, with uh, with mumps. Yeah, with mumps. Sorry, yeah. yeah, with mumps. And it was Dr. Brian Goldman who has also been on the show, uh, who is who shared something very similar that he had an experience with that as a young man as well. Uh, but I bring that up because the connection to the uh, vaccination, I guess it's a debate, although it's not really a debate. Uh, but you have a position on that they, that you that you spoke openly about. Yeah. So you know, if you're a journalist, you're supposed to be dispassionate, not have an opinion. And I did that for a long time. But now I'm a columnist, so I have a so I don't, I'm less shy about sharing them. Mm. I don't, uh, I've never written a first person story. I don't like writing about myself. I don't think I'm interesting. I write about other people and I use my body of knowledge I've gained over the years to share insight and opinions. And yeah, occasionally I get into little uh, to do's on Twitter and stuff. Right. And I, but I think just on, on important issues and when people are saying particularly ridiculous things, mm. uh, these days vaccination is a big, uh, not a debate, but a, a discussion and a social issue that's coming up a lot. Mm -hmm. So when I see these people saying things like, oh, you know, measles isn't so bad. And mm -hmm. I say, listen, you, I'm an old person. I lived through this era. I remember my classmates dying. I remember being gravely ill. These are not banal things. Mm -hmm. So we've, uh, like many things, if uh, you don't see them in your day to day, you just assume they're not a big deal. Right. So vaccination, like many other public health stories, the big uh, irony of public health is when it's successful, it's invisible, mm. right? That makes it difficult. So the, the vaccination has been so successful that these things have disappeared from our lives, so we think they're not a threat. Right. And sometimes uh, that's that's the role of older folks like me is to remind people that this, uh, I, I was born in the pre-vaccination era and I had all these things mm. and I can tell people how horrible they are. They're not, uh, you, you shouldn't be taking for granted the fact, oh, maybe my kid will get measles. Right. Uh, maybe your kid will die. Yeah. Yeah. That idea, certainly from the indigenous community of, of witnessing uh, that that you witness that in, in your own way as well. And, you know, I see this in the mental health community all the time, too. Um, Heather Stewart out at Queen's University talks a lot about contact based education. And, and I think this applies in just about any domain where we're trying to break down stigma or discrimination or difference is expose people to the thing that they're afraid of, you know, or, or the thing that they don't understand or they don't realize the implication of or whatever it might be. Uh, and in the case of vaccination, you know, because most of these diseases or at least used to be eradicated, although we're seeing uh, many more of them, people don't really realize what what we've overcome. And it's only been a short time, it seems. Yeah. And you have to re realize, you know, when I, because I write and because I speak, I think a lot about how do you communicate most effectively. Mm -hmm. And there's no question with health issues, people aren't influenced by fancy words or right. by journal articles. They're influenced by their peers. So you have to, 
you have to speak to people in a real basic fashion. You know, how do you want to your kids to be healthy? Mm-hmm. And uh, you want the mom to talk to the mom next door saying, listen, here's why I got my kids vaccinated. Right. That's what's going to have an influence. No amount of public health campaigns or, right. or physicians getting up and, you know, saying you have to vaccinate. That's not what's going right. to change people. How much do you think science education plays a role here? Because I was um, encountering... Uh, you know, and, and this is fairly common, and it seems in the anti-vax community, where they'll cite a whole bunch of articles. But then, when I actually started to click the links and look at look at the articles, it doesn't take somebody with a with a degree in research methods to see that these are not high quality scientific articles, or the people or the funding behind them. There's all kinds of issues with these with the science. So, how do you, as a journalist, uh, communicate the difference between good science and bad science, and do it in a layman's kind of way? Yeah, it's difficult, and I think that's. Uh, we do a terrible job of science education and worse yet, we we aren't equipping younger people with how to navigate this new world. You know, I was, I'm also from the pre-internet world. I've mm-hmm. learned it along the way, but it's, it's difficult uh, to, to uh, separate fact from fiction anymore mm-hmm. and reality from non-reality and it's getting more difficult. So I think we really have to put some effort into teaching kids that more than actual science. Right. Uh, but I, I don't think a lot of it is lack of knowledge. You know, th- many of the smartest, wealthiest people in society mm-hmm. are the worst anti-vaccination people because right. they're they're spoiled. They just, ah, my kid's not going to get sick and they're probably right. right. But that's not an excuse to uh, not, I, I see vaccination as sort of part of the social contract. It's something you do to protect others and to make society better. It's like paying your taxes. Yeah. Maybe that's not a good analogy because people don't like that. They don't, no. <laughs> But, you know, well, people are, don't like getting vaccinated either. Yeah. It's not fun, but but yeah. but it should you know it shouldn't be as unpleasant right. as it is. So one of my pet topics is uh, there's a great campaign out there called "It Doesn't Have to Hurt." Right. So it's about reducing the pain of childhood vaccination. There's no reason. Uh, I lived in the era where I got you know polio shots, the which were circle se- scar. Se- there's yeah. 17 needles at once, oh, yeah. and they were horrible. And uh, vaccines, where I'd get hepatitis, you'd get this shot in the butt, which it would hurt for a week. Uh, that stuff doesn't exist anymore but we should be able to we have little pain uh, uh, relievers called emla you can rub on so the kid doesn't right. feel the needle that should be standard uh, we have this notion that ah it's okay it's going to hurt for a minute but yeah. that stuff it actually scars children for life and sure. it prevents them from getting uh, care later in life so we have to take this stuff seriously it should be as easy and as pleasant as possible to to get right. uh, health products like vaccines now, I don't remember if it was you or somebody else that I saw this from, but around, um, and this is always an issue around headlines and the and the pictures and the captions that newspapers in particular or online publications use. Uh, and I, it may have been you. So, um, stories on vaccines almost always have a kid screaming and crying, you know, with the bags, holding them down. It looks just like a very traumatic yeah. picture, right? Instead of some people smiling in a nice, clean office. Yeah. And I think that kind of thing is changing. Right. That's changing pretty quickly because, you know, that's one of the, the upsides of the internet is people uh, can give feedback really quickly and, right. and papers uh, and other media are much more responsive to that now. Yeah, they so seem th- to be. And and this is, you know, to, to um, pivot into the mental health discussion more in a more focused way. Um, 
the head clutcher has been something that's been discussed in depression all the time. You yeah. know, the, the story about depression or mental illness, the guy with his head, usually a guy, usually a white guy, uh, with his head in his hands looking very despondent instead the, of just a regular looking person. Yeah, the head clutcher, the person, you know, the tear, the yeah. shadowed person, the one on standing on the bridge. We have all these, yeah. uh, we call them memes now. We used to call sure. them images that were inappropriate that I don't think we just, we just didn't think about them for the longest time. And yeah. The more people come out and share their stories, it becomes about real people. Uh, it makes it easier to do that. You know, we used to do that for a very practical reason is there was a shame people wouldn't talk about mental illness. You know, it was, ooh, you can't put my picture. So we'd put this little shadowy figure and that kind of became the standard. Interesting. Yeah. I remember the first, and you know, I've been doing this, not not, not the 40 years, but you know, about 10, 15 years now or so. And the very, some of the very first articles that I wrote were for newspapers, just commentary articles, usually about my own experience or the experience of people in my community. Uh, and I got pushback from editors saying, no, we can't, we, we, it's a, it's an unwritten rule that we don't write about suicide in particular. Yeah. I said, well, you write about murder and rape all the time and those have higher copycat rates. I know now than suicide does. Uh, so why not have a, a conversation about this? This is a discussion you've been very active in over the years with, uh, media guidelines and, and, the um, Mind, mind frame, I think it's called. Mindset. Mindset. Yeah. Thank you. Mindset guide uh, for media reporting on on mental health in particular. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So it's about uh, what you talked about is about changing the standards. So we had all these taboos and they're societal taboos and they carried over into newsrooms. And a lot of it goes back to, uh, you know, until 1972 in Canada, it was against the law to, to kill yourself, right. which seems kind of ironic as yeah, a law. Really. How but, are you going to prosecute somebody but it, who's But it dead, just yeah. it created this notion and, you know, you couldn't get buried in the Catholic cemetery. Right. So it was just wasn't talked about. So we have all, we developed all these euphemisms. You'd read some, you know, I in my early days, I'd write obituaries of people and you'd have to say died suddenly. Right. You know, and, and it's still very common. Yeah, yeah. And everybody knew what it meant. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. that's changed. And I, I think we learned over time that we were uh, not helping the problem. We were making it worse. So, mm -hmm. you know, the media, I think, helps shift cultural change. And, and, and we did it in this case. And, and I think it's a really important conversation. And to me, it was meeting people who had, who had survived suicide attempts, uh, people with mental illness saying, well, why do you treat us as differently mm -hmm. as these parasites? And, and at a certain point, you realize, why is this any different? Mm -hmm. You know, when I write about AIDS or schizophrenia or Ebola, what's the difference? It's all people who have a condition, so we right. should treat them equally. So you, you kind of learn that stuff and at a certain point say, listen, this isn't acceptable anymore. And then I, I have the ability to fight this from the inside of the paper while other people are fighting from the outside. And, and things, things have changed really dramatically. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm, I'm proud of that. Yeah. Yeah, and, and even in a very short time, you know, even five years or so, I've, I've seen dramatic changes in how we talk about mental health and suicide in the media. Yeah, if you look at, you know, uh, how a famous person with suicide, how they're covered today as opposed to 10 or 20 years ago, uh, there's no, no comparison whatsoever. Yeah. So now how for whether they're uh, or especially for journalists who might be listening, what is the best way in your mind to report on mental health and suicide in particular? How, what are some tips that you would give people for that? Well, you know, the mindset guide, the really key element in there is a single phrase is just cover it like everything else, cover mm -hmm. it with compassion, thoughtfulness, skepticism mm -hmm. and facts. 
Mm-hmm. So I think it's once we come to this realization that it's not any different from anything else, you get much better coverage. Yeah. Well, and, and, and doing it, too, I think, in a way that um, j- just in terms of being a good writer, try to avoid as many cliches as possible, you know, the uh, or especially inaccurate ones like the term committed suicide. We don't say committed because, yeah. like you say, it hasn't been a crime since the 70s. And you don't say that you you com- you don't commit dinner, yeah. <laughs> You're right? So so we we talk about people who die by suicide because it's it's a preventable public health crisis. Yeah. So watch your language. Right. You know, write like other any other issue. Right. And once you you think of it from that way, I, I think it becomes much easier for journalists to cover things well. Uh, you know, we have this these big debates. We have all these guidelines. Should we talk about the method? Mm-hmm. And those are those are guidelines. They're not hard and fast rules, right? And I again, I always say. Well, how do you cover a murder? When you cover a murder, do you say, you know, he had 16 bullets to the abdomen and bled? We don't do that. And we don't have rules about it. It's just common sense. And we have to do the same for suicide. Why why say someone was on a bridge and jumped unless it's relevant? Right. And when is it relevant? Rarely. Right. Yeah, no, and and I think that um, sometimes, at least in my experience, you know, I, because I share my stories, I don't get into you know nitty gritty graphic detail, but I don't skirt around it either. I yeah. say what I did because it's my it's my experience. I tried to jump off a bridge, you know, I did these things. That's part of my life. But what I always try to remind people is that there's a story arc here that we're not just sensationalizing or romanticizing that one little moment as though nothing else happened around it. Yeah. We need to but know about the context that got me there, that that I had been struggling with mental illness, as most people who die by suicide, according to many studies, do. Um, after that, I got better. I didn't die. you know. So that's why we're telling the story. And I want to tell you about how we got there. So I think it's important to be able to set these things in context and not just isolate and reduce. Oh, absolutely. And when you're telling your own story, it's very different from me telling someone else's story. Right. right? You have right. to be more respectful. And, and it's a different way of telling a story. So uh, I think the ultimate rule is someone can tell their own story however they they please. Yeah. Yeah. What are some of the stories that uh, either mental health related or not that you've covered over the years that have really that have stuck with you that you think about uh, a lot, especially the individuals that you've met in that time? Yeah. So I think a lot of it is the the aid stories, as I said, because I started that so early and I've done it for so long. A lot of those stories uh, really stick with me. Uh, it's funny, you kind of people often ask this and I, I say you don't remember the big stories as much as you remember particular people. Mm. Like some people just for no specific reason will just stay with you and you'll stay in touch with them. And, and they're not necessarily famous. Their story wasn't really necessarily compelling, but it's just like, oh, that was a really... Uh, so I'll give you an example. So I wrote a story once about someone who uh, had had a baby and was in hospital and rolled over and suffocated the baby. So mm. uh, this is, I always tell journalism students, this is the most memorable email I ever got. It started off I killed my baby. So that gets my attention. I get a lot of emails, but I definitely read that. (laughs) And then I was in in contact with her for several months, and I actually discouraged her from telling her story because I thought she... You know, I thought she was suffering from some real trauma. And I said, you don't realize how people are going to treat you. They're going to treat you like a murderer and stuff. And we went back and forth and uh, had this negotiation. I said, you know, I want to be able to see your your medical records. You know, I think we have to do... Uh, due process for stories to do them properly. So I ask for stuff like that for people. And I ask for permission to talk to her psychologist to say, do you know, is this going to 
push her over the edge if we write a story. And yeah. and three months later, I actually did the story because, you know, I was convinced she was ready. But that, that story always stayed with me, uh, how uh, really strong she was and how passionate she was and willing to share this horrible story. Right. And it and she said, you know, I want it. I want to make sure, as all, all people who tell these stories, they want it to be better for others, right? Yeah. And the, she told that story, and it actually had a beautiful photo on the front page of the Globe. And the next day, there was a committee struck to set guidelines for co-sleeping in hospitals, wow. yeah. and there probably hasn't been another death. Like, it really had an impact, what she did, but there was a whole backstory. And I, so I remember people like that very vividly. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, some people I meant, uh, I, I mentioned someone, I know this uh, uh, someone who's become a good friend, who's a grandmother, who was infected with AIDS during surgery in 1981. So the kind of those kind of stories stick with you. Yeah, yeah. How have um, you know? Not I think that not enough people talk about the vicarious trauma sometimes the journalists experience. I mean, you must have seen some shit in your day, right? Going out and covering these kinds of kinds of stories. Doesn't that affect you? Well, I, and not only that, but I, I because I'm French-speaking, I often cover things for the globe in French-speaking countries. So I, right. I actually spent many months in Rwanda during the genocide. Right. So that's talking about seeing stuff that's awful. There, nothing compares to that, seeing people slaughtered with machetes and yeah. uh, piles of bodies and cholera camps. Uh, I remember being in a cholera camp when 20,000 people a day were dying of cholera. And if you know anything about cholera, it's a a disease with a lot of bodily fluids, right. if I could put it ungraphically. Yeah, yeah. So some of that stuff is pretty gruesome. Uh, d- does it affect you again? I think it's unpredictable. It's right. like uh, the stories. Some little things really get to you, and some of the big things don't. Right. Uh, so the Rwanda story, of course, we, we talk about, and I'm I'm on a committee, uh, I'm on a group now uh, uh, of journalists where we uh, provide grants for journalists who suffer trauma and to prevent trauma. So, I, mm. And I, I think that's important for an old person like me to give back from the sure. lessons I've learned. And, and I think the most important thing I learned about trauma is uh, you're less affected if you feel that you're doing something useful. Right. So I'll give you an example. So I was in Rwanda and I saw awful things and I met some peacekeepers there who saw the exact same things as me. Uh, I know some of them and I've written stories about them, really, really debilitating PTSD, suicide. Mm. And I, you know, I'm fine. Uh, and I'll say that in quotes because maybe I was never fine in the first place. But I, you <laughs> yeah, relatively, I relate I, to that. oddly, and I, I don't think I'm special or anything, but I didn't suffer any particular harm from that psychologically. Right. So why is it? So I, I, I did spend a lot of time thinking about that. And to me, I felt that I was writing stories for Canadians and con, you know conveying the, the horrors there. I felt I was doing something useful. Maybe I'm just full of myself or mm-hmm. whatever. But regardless that psychologically I felt there was a purpose to it that I was there. The peacekeepers who I spoke to uh, felt they were powerless. They couldn't Mm -hmm. intervene. They were spit on. They were, you know, they're treated like crap. They knew they could have ended the genocide in 48 hours if they were given the power to intervene. Mm -hmm. They they were destroyed by this, by not being able to to do their jobs. So I think that's the difference. If you're powerless, that the trauma is so much more impactful. That would be a, um, I'm not sure, maybe if research exists on this already in the, in the clinical world, but that would be a fascinating uh, study, I think, to go in and compare people who come out of those circumstances with PTSD and those who don't, because there has been some research on that. Not everybody who goes to war comes back with PTSD. 
Uh, and what's the difference between those people? You know, I think we focus a lot, over much sometimes, on genetic differences and, and biological differences. Well, maybe there's a mindset difference going into it. Maybe it is a matter of control. Yeah, well, it is, a, it is an area, as you know, of a, a lot of research, What, who has resilience and why. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think we know, but I think we have some clues. I think that's one example. Mm-hmm. I'm not a scientist, but that's my, my theory on that one. I, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. I, I think as some of it is probably physical, you know, you are equipped to, to deal with some stuff better than uh, the good thing is that in my business, we're taking this much more seriously. Yeah. Uh, the other part that I think was really important, a really good thing on part of my employer is we had a rule. If you go overseas or if you go anywhere and if you feel unsafe in any way, mm-hmm. uh, it's just come home. There's no questions asked. Really? It doesn't matter yeah. if it costs $5,000. We'll deal with that later. Yeah. Just leave. So in Rwanda, the person that was there before me, a veteran international reporter. He had covered wars, Vietnam, all kinds of gruesome stuff. He was there for 24 hours. He couldn't take it. Mm. Just got on a plane. There was no judgment. He wasn't yeah. punished. His career didn't suffer. That That's important too, yeah. to be able to know that you can bail out. Yeah. If, you know, it, it's great that, and it's one thing if workplaces provide that kind of, and I think they have to be explicit about it, provide that kind of safety uh, to be able to protect yourself. Um, but if people don't either understand or use it or, you know, so yep. if you have a young journalist, I don't know if they'd ever send a, a young new journalist over into a situation like that, but maybe they would. Um, That's who does it. That, well, is it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah absolutely. Because you don't want, uh, you know, I don't do that stuff anymore. I, right. Yeah, so yeah. you do that before you have kids and when you can, I, I walked out my uh, apartment in the morning and I came home four months later. You don't right. do that when you're have a family and yeah, all that. Yeah, so that, sure, that, is the, sure. the, that is the work of young people. But do young journalists then know, though, uh, is it made explicit to them, no, you really can leave. It's not going to, to hurt your career down the road. Well, it was at the time, thankfully, at our paper. I don't yeah. think it was the case everywhere. I think sure. now it is. I think we're, we're much more cautious and there's debriefing and oh, psychological wow, yeah. care. All that stuff's available now that we didn't even think of. Right. Uh, you know, in my time, when I came back from there, while well, you're back, everything's fine, right? Yeah. And thankfully it was. Yeah. But if it wasn't, uh, you know, people like uh, Kurt Petrovich have told really, uh, he's told his story very well about suffering from PTSD. He was a war reporter at CBC and they, they didn't treat him well. They yeah. didn't get the care he needed. Yeah. What would you try to teach your your younger self your, as a young Andre Picard just getting into this kind of field? What, what lessons have you learned over the last 40 years that you would want him to know if you could just skip ahead <laughs> and learn some of that stuff? Yeah, that's a good question. I think I probably would have started uh, writing about stuff like mental health earlier. Right, yeah. So, you know, I'd say listen to people more. I think we've gotten good at that. Uh, the patient-centered care, et cetera, is, is really becoming the norm now, or at least mm. the norm in the discussion, if not on the on the ground. Mm-hmm. But just, I, I think, listen to uh, people more than experts. Mm. So I give you the example at the outset about why did I start covering AIDS? Uh, because the Globe's medical reporter, I, I'll always remember that. She said, why would you talk to the patients? What do they know? <laughs> and she wasn't an evil person. No, that, sure. that was just a belief at the time. You wrote uh, medical journals, published stuff. You talked to the experts. And that was what health reporting was. Right. And I, you know, I wasn't some brilliant young reporter. I just stumbled into an era where that was changing, where gay men said, no, that's not acceptable. Mm. And they were smart enough to know how to get media attention. They did. I covered lots of protests. They'd throw bags of blood, things like that, oh, stuff wow. that would get attention. Sure. Uh, so we, we started almost by default writing about people. And then it, uh, 
the AIDS movement was, you know, much more influential than we give it credit for. Uh, women with breast cancer started seeing, hey, look at these gay men, what they're doing. That, that's mm. smart. We should tell our stories too. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, the breast cancer movement has lapped them a few times mm -hmm. because it's a little more compelling to the general public. So they'd really changed the way that medical reporting is done. It, mm -hmm. It's about people now and it's about issues much more than about, you know, medicine. Yeah, and that's certainly how we approach uh, mental health, yep. I, like, yep. I think in a, in a best practice perspective anyway. Uh, and I wonder if part of that, you know, I'm just kind of reflecting on this now, is still that there is still kind of a stigma around psychiatry and uh, formal mental health care. Uh, so in some ways, it's more compelling to hear from the person person's experience because not everybody takes a psychiatrist seriously for some reason still. Yeah, there's still a lot of stigma out there, a lot of assumptions, and, and we'll get there eventually, but there right. are, we'll have stigmas about something else. You know, that's, I think. that's true, yeah. And actually, you know, it's funny, um, for the last few years, and I've heard this, it's, it's not very... Um, not very eloquent, but essentially that mental health is the new cancer uh, yeah. in many ways, that it's it's the new popular thing to talk about. And and I feel like in some ways that's starting to ebb a little bit now um, that that people are getting used to talking about these kinds of things. But I'm not sure I'm not convinced yet that we've seen the meaningful policy changes uh, in the mental health sphere that we have in some others, you know, with right. tainted blood, with AIDS, with some of these others. What what's it going to take to do that? You know? Yeah, so that's my uh, my big beef that I, I write uh, columns about a lot these days. I, I think it's really important that the stigma has been tackled with mental health. You know, Bell Let's Talk Day, that's a great thing. Mm -hmm. But at a certain point, uh, to me, uh, if we send a message to people, it's okay to tell your story, it's okay to be open. To me, there's this implicit promise that we're going to help you. Mm. And I, I think we failed in, in fulfilling that promise. So if you just tell your story and it's not going to make any difference, it's not useful to tell your story. Mm. So I think it's really important that we, we have to do that other part. We have to provide the care. Uh, we have to promote wellness, you know, mental wellness rather than just waiting for people to get sick. Mm -hmm. we, we still do a terrible job of prevention in healthcare, mm -hmm. and we do it the worst in, in the mental health field. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is a, a kind of a constant battle, I think, where we're always talking about um, building it, across the healthcare system. You know, if mental health is the same, if mental illness is the same as every other illness, then let's get more hospital beds. Let's right. build more hospital space. Well, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in a psychiatric hospital or ward, but it's not the most conducive place to recovery. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've been, I've been there a few times. So, you know, I, I think that we, we need to, to break out of that bubble of only the biological, biomedical model. That's part of it for yeah. sure. Uh, but that's not how we're going to change the mental health system. No, but we have to find that balance too, right? Like uh, uh, one of the most striking stats I'll ever remember is that in, in 1960 in Canada, there were 60,000 psychiatric beds. Mm. Today, there are 6,000. Wow. So it's one-tenth yeah. of the beds and far more people with the illness. Uh, so I, I don't think we have the, uh, you know, the pendulum is strong has swung too far one way. So yeah. I think we need more psychiatric beds, but they need to be different. They can't be the old, you know, nuthouse on the hill yeah. of my youth where yeah. ooh, let's hide them out in the country and, you know, never let them out. Yeah. Uh, we have to have good psychiatric beds rather than people living on the streets. So right. the people we've, there's no question we institutionalized far too many people before, but I think now we don't provide enough care for the severely mentally ill who are living in our streets as we travel all over Canada. I, I don't see that anywhere else in the world to the extent I see it in Canada. I think it's yeah. one of our, our great shames. You know, walking here this morning, I must have walked by 10 men sleeping on 10 grates. Yeah. 
and they those are not well people. Right. Uh, and I, it's, I think to me, it's one of the most challenging issues to write about. I, you don't have a, a right to be sick, right. you know, and that, it's a weird thing that I'm a civil libertarian at heart, but I draw the line there. I don't think people have, uh, people say, oh, well, you know, we can't force them into treatment. And I say, well, at a certain point, yes, we have to do what's, what's good for people if they can't think straight uh, reasonably. Right. But those are really hard and emotional issues to write about. And there's no black and white there, but right. they're, it makes those issues interesting to write about. Yeah. And I, I think this is an area we were talking before we went on air um, where where I think we need a bit more depth or a whole lot more depth in the advocacy community uh, in terms of what people are advocating for. And it's that, OK, if you want more psychiatric beds, more hospitals, more psychiatrists, great. P.S. Downtown Toronto has more psychiatrists per capita than anywhere else in Canada and access is no better. <laughs> so people are still waiting a year to 18 months, sometimes longer for for psychiatric care. Um, but I think where the depth comes in is that when you check into a psychiatric hospital and, and not enough stories, individual stories yet, I think, are out there about this, it's not a very active treatment environment. Yeah. You're seeing a psychiatrist for 15 minutes, maybe once a day to adjust your meds. Yeah. That's about it. You know, I'd like to see in terms of system reform, much more hands on active psychotherapy, uh, uh, social supports, uh, along with the biomedical kind of intervention. Yeah, it shouldn't be a, an alternate form of uh, of jail. And that's right. what often it is. Uh, another really striking example is, uh, I think, the one of the worst treated conditions in, in Canada is eating disorders. Right. So what we do is it tends to be young girls, teenage girls. Uh, they get to a certain point where they're almost dead. So we put them in the hospital. And what do we do? Well, we refeed them, right. but we've cut all the psychological services. We There's no counseling. So they sit there and they get fed against their will three times a day right. until they're little, well enough to go back out on the street and starve themselves right. again. It's go back absurd, into the environment yeah. where it came up in the first place. Yeah. So it's an right. absurd way of doing things. So there's some real fundamental right. changes we have to make. But you're right. That's, that's what people have to advocate for. So to me... Uh, I, I'm right, as you know, write a lot about mental health. I think mm -hmm. it's important, but I think we give far too much attention to, uh, you know, worried well, for the lack right. of a better term. People, right. you know, you're, yeah, you suffer depression and you get treated and got better. And yeah, that's important, but it's not as important as the guy sleeping on the grate. That's a much more uh, important issue to tackle. And that's a person whose life is mm -hmm. at risk. And we, we have to invest much more in that the high-end treatment, and they don't have any advocates. They're not doing right. TED Talks. Right, right, exactly. And and nobody is speaking up for them. Yeah, yeah. I think that's accurate uh, to to an extent. I think if we were to only focus on the oh, no, not only, no, not only. But, uh, but I think that would embed stigma further because then we're saying, look, yeah. all these quote-unquote crazy people, this is what they look like. And then the other 90% of people are yeah. saying, well, where does that put me? Uh, you know, so I, I, I think that's a problem. But you're right in terms of investment, in terms of where we actually need to be to to be helping people uh, it's 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 a it's criminal what are what's happening in First Nations communities across yeah. Canada for example with the suicide crises uh, yeah. in many of those yeah I'm not saying either or I'm saying right. proportionally we're just not giving attention no. to indigenous communities to people to street people right. etc
Well, and it's part of the reason I think that the system operates so inefficiently, as we're saying, everybody with every mental ache and pain uh, needs to go to a psychiatrist and uh, get their medication and go into the, to the hospital and all this. Well, actually, no, most of those people probably don't need that kind of intensive treatment. If you have a, yeah. a stomach flu, you don't need to go to an oncologist. You don't need to, to go to somebody who's not necessarily indicated for what it is you're dealing with. Yeah. Uh, so this is where the issue, I think, and, and this is going to be um, – I think the single thing that would would advance mental health care in Canada is if we had publicly funded psychotherapy. Um, if people could access the type of treatment that they need instead of all being forced down one narrow hallway. Yeah, and that's an issue we've talked about many times and we write a lot about it at the paper and we, we really got to get there. And that's just, a, you know, it's an artifact of our history, right? Mm-hmm. We made this uh, when we brought in Medicare. I, I like a lot. I write a lot about the history of Medicare. I'm interested in that. And uh, one of the reasons our mental health system is so bad is just a small little uh, decision back in 1957 to uh, when we decided to publicly fund hospitals to exclude psychiatric hospitals. Mm. So they became part of the prison system and they got underfunded. They became terrible. And then, you know, along the way, somebody decided, well, we're not going to fund psychotherapy for no rhyme or reason. No, scientifically, it works right. just as well, sometimes better. Exactly. <laughs> right. But it just got implemented into the system and, and we're stuck with it and we're right. not very good at fixing things once they're in place. Right. Despite the fact that, while well, yes, it would be an upfront investment, the downstream return on an investment like that would be huge in terms yeah. of alleviating pressure on the system. Yeah, and the good thing is, uh, I, I think one of the one most uplifting things for me in writing about mental health is how the business community is getting into this. Mm-hmm. Re- uh, I often say to, uh, when I talk to advocates, you have to speak the language of the people you want to influence. Right. And the business community realizes that this is costly. You know, they have a lot of presenteeism in the workplace. They have a lot of, uh, you know, the single, uh, biggest cause of disability long-term and short-term is depression. So the business community is realizing th- this is a good investment. We're yeah. going to bolster our plans, have more psychotherapy because it's going to cost us less in the end. Yeah. Well, companies uh, just over the last couple of years that have really come out, and I've never seen anything like it, like Manulife yeah. or Starbucks offering, I think, $10,000, $5,000 uh, psychotherapy benefit, essentially enough money to go to psychotherapy, a week psychotherapy session uh, every week for a year. Yeah. Uh, and that's probably going to help you get through your depression or anxiety or whatever tier uh, at that level tier uh, that you're at, which helps the business. And right? it's going to make, make you a better employee right. and you're going to less miss work less and you're going to be better to your kids. And yeah, yeah, it's a good investment. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder uh, what the what the impacts of that have been. Companies like Bell, who have been training, I think last I heard, 8,000 managers or something like that on mental health awareness and how to help their employees. Uh, and they did start to see the last I heard some impact on their on their business in terms of um, it wasn't reducing the amount of or the number of people who were taking time off for mental health related concerns, but it was reducing the amount of time that they were off, yeah. which is a, a, a key uh, indicator because it means people are struggling uh, for shorter periods of time. Uh, but I still don't think we have enough data yet uh, to to really support uh, what we've been saying, unless you've seen uh, well w- the way we collect data is yeah, very poor. Exactly. Yeah. No, I don't think we have the data, but I, I think it'll come. Uh, you know, I was just speaking at a conference of two hundred human uh, of HR people, right. so there's a lot of interest in the community, and that I think that's good. So the data will come. Yeah. But sometimes you have to you have to do stuff before the data is there. That's true. And then if it doesn't work, well, you don't. 
I think that's a big problem in our health system is we're always afraid to fail. Right. Sometimes if things fail, that's fine. The, the, the best companies in the world uh, don't have a problem with failure because right. that's how they get their, their best lessons. Well, this is also too reflective of, of the mental health care system more broadly, is that there's a, a, a shocking lack of data in the operations of the system. We don't know how often, how long people are waiting yeah. for psychiatric care. We know down to the day, pretty much the minute, how long you're waiting for a hip or knee replacement. But we have no idea when you present at that emergency room how long you've been waiting uh, to, to get in, to see somebody, who you're seeing, how many times you repeat your story, uh, how many times you've been in. We don't even fully know how many, officially, how many suicides there are and, right. and if it actually was a suicide or not. Right. And it's a it's a reflection of uh, you know what it, what matters in society. There's right. a famous expression: if you don't count it, it doesn't count. Right, right? and that's n no more more true than in in the mental health field. We don't yeah. count a lot of stuff. We don't really want to know. I think. No, exactly. Well, and I think that this is a. I, I try to, I guess, comfort people that this is a generational shift that we're seeing, and and millennials and younger are way more likely than any other generation to speak openly about their mental health and, more importantly, to ask for help. Uh, but like you said earlier, uh, if we're telling people to reach out all the time, they're starting to find out that there's nobody there to reach back in many cases. I think that that's, uh, while difficult, um, a supply and demand kind of economy, that in order to change the system, I think we need that pressure on the system. Uh, and this is a really painful growth period, but it doesn't mean we stop telling people to reach out, I think, because right. it's that pressure that, that, in my opinion, is going to change the system. I and I think uh, I think you're right. I think the millennials are going to change this. I was really heartened to see uh, this week there was a protest at the University of Toronto, yes. a silent protest where they are demanding, tell us about the suicides on campus. To me, yeah. like imagine that 10 years ago, it was unthinkable. Yeah. And, and I think that's really important. And I, I've seen those protests on a dozen university campuses. I, I think there's a real movement there building that, that's going to really make a difference. And the university is going to have to wake up. They're still living in the last century on this issue. I couldn't possibly agree more that, you know, sharing these kinds of stories is, is how we help people. We know that you, you prevent suicide by talking about it in particular. So. You certainly don't help by, by being silent. We certainly don't. And that's not something that we can accuse you of, Andre, for <laughs> as being silent. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> but I think the country is better because of it. Have you ever actually traced or, or, or tracked how many of your stories or projects have led to um, to to direct change in that way, inquiries, policy changes. No, no, it's you know, you, I, I when again when I go talk to journalism students, I said, I, I describe myself as sort of a a water torture test on public policymakers. So I, I don't expect big dramatic change, sure. but I hammer away at them over the years, and 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 you see the change come gradually, and that's right. that's what you hope you're making a bit of a difference. Well, that inspires me because, uh, you know, the, we've been hammering away at the mental health cause in a very public way for a few years now. And uh, I always feel like it's, we're right on the cusp of big change. So so we'll see what happens. There's an election coming. This this episode will be up uh, before the next uh, federal election happens. So we'll, we'll see if we'll get some meaningful change out of them. Uh, any parting words for uh, for those who are listening about uh, your work, about the stories that you've shared and, and how we talk about these things in, in the public sphere? No, I guess the only uh, thing I'd urge people to do is, uh, you know, realize the impact of the media is important. You may not like everything we write, and that's fine, but it is really impactful. It's important to democracy. So 
buy a newspaper subscription. I, I don't care if it's to my competitors, uh, but buy, you know, invest your money in good information because it's really crucial to your health. Yeah. I just recently actually subscribed to uh, one of your competitors. Uh, not not that competitor, <laughs> a different competitor, uh, but I only did it for the crossword puzzle. So, okay. uh, <laughs> but thank you, Andre, uh, for joining me today. It's, uh, you know, I've been wanting to talk to you for so long. I'm, I'm an avid follower of yours and, uh, and you don't disappoint. So thanks for coming in. Well, thanks, Mark. All right. That's my conversation with Andre Picard, health columnist for the Globe and Mail uh, and an all-around Twitter superstar when it comes to uh, reporting on health. One of the, I think, you know, I didn't fully appreciate how uh, influential, how consequential his reporting has been truly over the last 40 years, leading to real meaningful change. So it was, it was so great to talk to him, uh, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, if you did, please, or even if you didn't, go on to uh, Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to this. Uh, subscribe to the show, So-Called Normal. Uh, leave us a rating. Those ratings really make a huge difference. Uh, share it. Please do share it with your friends and family. Tell them to, to listen. Uh, we, we do this every week. Uh, and it's been been so much fun uh, learning about all these people. Uh, if you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, wherever else you find me, I'm not hard to find. It's at Mark Hennick, at M-A-R-K-H-E-N-I-C-K. You can also visit me online on my website, markhennick.com slash so-called normal. Uh, what else do we got here? Oh, if you want some uh, free trial of psychotherapy, online, safe, effective psychotherapy, head over to betterhelp.com slash mark, enter the promo code mark, M-A-R-K, uh, and you're going to get a free trial of some online psychotherapy. If you like it, great, stick with it, subscribe to that too. If not, whatever, at least you tried it. So that's betterhelp.com slash mark, and the promo code is mark, M-A-R-K. Thanks so much for listening to So-Called Normal. I'm Mark Hennick. Take care.